The House of Roll journeys far and wide to bring you exceptional quality kitchen and bath fixtures. In all of this, you'll see the details of your own story. The story of a life well-crafted. Welcome to the House of Roll. The promise of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? It's time for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician. And she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. Welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour. The traditional media and our partisan politicians on both sides of the aisle work hard to inflame your passions. My purpose is different. I've come to inform you, to give you information and perhaps some insight that will enable you to make an independent judgment on current events and to encourage you to act on those judgments. In business, it's axiomatic that for every action one of my clients takes, there is an opposite reaction. It's no different with social and political phenomena like hashtag MeToo. A recent NBC News survey found that hashtag MeToo has changed not just the power dynamic between men and women in the workplace, but also how men and women act in the workplace and how they react with each other after hours. The changes have been dramatic, and there are significant consequences. One survey question in the NBC survey got my attention. Remember that this is the respondent's colorful language, not mine, but I am going to quote because we are in Silicon Valley, and we're very frank out here. Quote, I am a woman, and hashtag me too has screwed me. In Silicon Valley, it is really hard to get time with VCs, venture capitalists. So you do have to do what you have to do. A lot of times, that would be meeting them at a bar in the evening. It's good networking, and that's how I got my initial seed funding. But now no one wants to meet with a woman under 40. Even in the office, they won't be alone with you. I'm a big girl, and I don't need this patriarchal assumption that anything might upset me and make me bring a lawsuit or worse. Here to help us understand the reaction to hashtag MeToo, What's happening? Why is it happening? What are the consequences and where do we go from here? Are Anne-Marie Malika and Josh Culling. Anne-Marie and Josh are partners at Desenhall Resources in Washington, D.C. They counsel corporations and high-profile individuals on high-stakes communication and advocacy efforts. Desenhall is a public affairs and crisis management firm that consoles corporations, trade associations, and high-profile individuals facing intense scrutiny from the media, government, competitors, or activists. Josh, 
you mentioned when we were talking about doing the show, the similarities in how a young woman begins to network from her first job to a real career in Washington, D.C., and how similar it strikes you that it is between Washington, D.C.'s scene and the young entrepreneur who describes her situation. And can you elaborate? Sure. And, and thanks for having both of us on. I'm ex- excited for the conversation. Uh, I you know, I think Anne-Marie may actually be better qualified to, to answer this question than I am, as she started her career out on Capitol Hill, and I did not. I mean, I think my um, sense of the, you know, the, the economy in Washington, D.C. is very different, different than the economy in the Bay Area, but a lot of the um, workforce dynamics are the same. Uh, so many people in Washington get their start on, on Capitol Hill working for a member of Congress. Um, and then sort of branch out in their career from there. And I think the dynamics, there are two elements that are very similar to Silicon Valley. One is Congress tends to be a very male-dominated place at the top, much more, many more uh, male members of Congress than female. And also, it's networking on steroids. I mean, people get to know each other and build a network of, of professionals based on uh, you know, cocktails at the tune-in uh, after votes and receptions and, and late nights. And you, you can see a lot of similarities in, in what is being described in Silicon Valley as, as sort of networking after dark um, as a way to, to move up in the workforce. So I, I think that we're, while we're on the opposite side of the country and, and in a very different line of work than, than many VCs and others in the tech community, uh, we have some some experience in uh, the way one builds a career uh, through networking out here. And and Anne-Marie, adding to that, you would probably have started your career in not just a male-dominated, you know, members of Congress, but probably a skewed ratio of men to women in the staff roles. Would that be? And, And so what was your experience? I mean, Joyce, you're absolutely right. I was generally the only woman in the room, or if I had a peer in the room, that was uncommon but welcome. Um, When you're dealing with members of Congress that are generally significantly older than you are and the the guests that are coming to the Hill, whether they be from the district, um, to meet the member or lobbyists for meetings related to issues that you're handling, generally everyone in the room is male and you know, 30 or so older, 30 or so years older than uh, I was. And I think Josh is absolutely right that, um, you know, that that opportunity to meet folks in a position of power that could add value to your career on the Hill is infinite, but you can't just have a meeting in the office and then that be the end of it. It's following up, it's having lunch, it's staying in touch. And those things uh, absolutely added value to my career and got me to where I am today. I think the big thing that um, folks often forget is in the power dynamics, also age. Um, You know, most Capitol Hill staffers are under the age of 30. Most members are over the age of 50. Um, And that creates an additional challenge in the power dynamics as well as just male and female. And in the last two minutes before we go to commercial break, have you seen a difference in how those networking activities go on in the last six to nine months since hashtag me too and and Senator Gillibrand came to the scene? 
you know, I think we have, and I think there is a, a awareness of how much people are drinking at these events, how much they're fraternizing with um, the opposite sex alone. You know, are there any optics of Josh and Anne Marie of 10 years ago just having a conversation over a glass of wine? Could that be misconstrued? I think people are more aware of um, the optics of what they're doing. Um, I also think there are some, like uh, Vice President Pence, that have sort of taken it to the extreme where they're not willing to have one-on-one conversations with the opposite sex. And that is concerning, especially in a town like Washington where so many decisions and negotiations happen face-to-face with a handshake and a quick conversation. Yeah, Yeah, and just, just if I could add to that, Joyce, I mean, I think that one of the things that firms like ours are, are, are struggling with, and really anyone who runs a business is struggling with, is um, how do you preserve your organizational culture, especially if, like at Desert Hall, it's very collegial, um, and, you know, we're about down the middle uh, in terms of a mix of, of men and women, um, but how do we preserve that collegial culture while being sensitive to some of the optics that Anne-Marie describes. And I think that, you know, maybe after the break we, we can get into some, um, some of the things that we've done and some of the things that we've also counseled our clients on doing in terms of handling um, this sort of new moment. Uh, but it's something that I think a lot of folks are really thinking hard about and trying to be proactive rather than reactive, because in the case of uh, the, the Me Too moment, uh, reactive is not going to go well for you. I I think you're absolutely right, and we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back with Anne-Marie and Josh and to talk more about hashtag MeToo and how do we go forward. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org, reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back. This is the Reimagine America Radio Hour with Joyce Cordy, and we have as guests today Anne Marie Malika and Josh Culling from Deason Hall Resources, a crisis management firm in Washington D.C., and we're talking about hashtag Me Too and where do we go from here? And Anne Marie, you know, you and I are both part of Alley to the Valley, which is a nationwide network of influential women um, in business and politics and media. And so we know through the network a whole lot of women entrepreneurs, and we know they share some characteristics, whether they're over 40 or under 40. They tend to be shrewd. They tend to be risk takers, and they tend not to take a back seat to most anyone. And we also know that 60% of college graduates across the country today are women, and that women are 50% more likely to actually earn their bachelor degree in their 20s than their male peers. So they have a really powerful, whether it's in politics or business or wherever, women are going to be increasingly um, the, the producers in our economy. So if women don't have ready access to venture capitalists and other forms of funding, people who are going to help them to turn innovation into products and income and grow the United States economy, 
what's going to happen to us from a broader economic consequence in your view? Joyce, that's a great question. And so much of the conversation surrounding the Me Too movement has focused on the social and societal aspects, which it rightfully should. But I think now, you know, we've started a national dialogue of, um, you know, looking forensically at some of the power dynamics that have existed and that have really uh, been uh, dis- uh, disadvantages for women. Now that we're sort of past the initial shock and um, identifying the problems, I think we can start to see sort of what the the consequences going forward are. And the economic component is huge. And, you know, if we look at any of the the studies that have done and been done in recent years of the value of having women on corporate boards. If you have at least one female board of director, it's likely that whatever industry you're in, your company will fare better. Um, And those things shouldn't be lost sight of. Women bring a unique perspective to the table and to the room. And the value that we bring from just a pure economic perspective is infinite. Um, Women work in ways that are different than men. And there's, you know, this, this wonderful... Uh, balance that can be achieved in having teams that are diverse, both um, from a gender perspective as well as a cultural and racial perspective, that if we lose sight of that, I think the economic consequences are going to be um, really damaging. Um, You know, it's hard because we don't have clear numbers, but I think if we looked at seeing women receding in just, say, uh, the CEO role of Fortune 100 companies, which we've seen over the last few years, um, you know, there have been some economic downturns where women could be of value. And we can't lose sight of the fact that the economic powerhouses that women are, um, you know, should be considered in all of these conversations. So do you think that the reluctance or, you know, the the sorts of anecdotal things that both you and I see um, every day in terms of men who are concerned about perception, about protecting themselves, is that, in your view, um, going to hold women back both in corporate um, America and in these more entrepreneurial areas? I mean, you do work in Silicon Valley. You know what the disproportionate uh, or or a number of men versus women. Um, And in addition to that, uh, from an economic point of view, the multicultural issues that go even beyond the Me Too movement and can be misconstrued. I think it absolutely has the potential to do that. And that's why the dialogue is so important. I understand that there's, you know, sort of fear on both sides, and fear generally leads to uncomfortability, and none of these conversations, I think, are comfortable for anyone sitting at the table. But if the conversations don't happen of, yes, there have been some power dynamics where women have been disadvantaged, okay, as women, it's important for us to, you know, make those facts be known in a way that men can learn from them. And that's one of the the great values I appreciate about the partnership Josh and I have is, you know, there are some things that just by nature of his his experience, he didn't realize that someone who of similar age, skill, and talent, being myself, has has experienced just because I'm a woman. Um, And if we can't have those conversations, which I think need to be happening in Silicon Valley rather than us running to separate corners, and saying, well, no, I just am not going to go near this, um, it it will have long-term consequences. 
Well, yeah, and I'll, I'll jump ahead. in on that too. I mean, I think I think it's fairly obvious to me that on balance, the Me Too moment or movement uh, has been positive for for women and and, and men um, economically as well as culturally uh, because it forced a lot of men. I, you know, I myself am sort of a traditional conservative white guy um, on the <laughs> East Coast who um, hadn't thought about these issues. It just hadn't been shoved in my face. And my wife brought it to my attention by sort of having a series of conversations after all this stuff started happening that made me open my eyes and say, wow, this is, this is a widespread dynamic that's been going on for a, a number of years where there's a lack of balance in power dynamics in professional settings and a heck of a lot of other settings uh, in America and around the world. So I think it's very illuminating and important that it happened, and I think that it, to, to answer your question of the economics of it, it's going to um, provide more upward mobility for women in the workforce. But I think what you're getting at in terms of the, does the backlash against it, um, will it sort of clap back against women that uh, and their opportunities? I think that, sure, there is certainly uh, the possibility of, of overreaction um, on behalf of, on the part of men. Um, and we need to be careful, and again, I'll use the word proactive in dealing with a lot of these issues and um, having open conversations that are built on a foundation of trust. So what we can do in the workplace is get out ahead of it, make sure that everyone's on the same page, that we can talk honestly with each other and continue those conversations pretty much forever now moving forward to make sure that Everyone is clear on what is appropriate and inappropriate. Everyone is comfortable um, with, with po certain policies, and um, everyone, you know, trusts both their fellow colleagues and the, you know, I guess you'd say upper management that disputes or problems are going to be adjudicated properly and evenly and honestly. Yeah, well, but there is a there is still a dynamic um, because Anne Marie, you're a millennial. I'm a late baby boomer. And we've had the same experience. I was the only woman in my B-school class. In 1980, when the I was a young ingenue, I was the only woman on the floor in the Intel booth at um, National Computer Conference when the 8086 was announced. Um, you were the only woman in a whole number of meetings. I mean, it was just... It, you know, we still find ourselves um, when we move into non-traditional roles as being, you know, fewer of us. Um, and yes, you and I are both risk takers. We, you know, we we got out there. Um, but what is is that dynamic still um, an inhibitor to women or is it starting to inhibit men? I think it has the potential to inhibit both depending on, you know, who who's in the in the room. And one of the interesting things about, you know, being in meetings even today, I still find myself being the only room woman in the room with clients and other colleagues throughout the industry. And um, you know, I never really thought a whole lot of it because mm -hmm. that just was what it was. And I think that's one of the things that we're starting to realize throughout um the course of of this sort of evolution is that, you know, it was easy to accept what society was at face value because that's what it was and we sort of didn't know any different. Um, I think that one of the challenges 
uh, right now is the cross-generational component. Yes, you, you and I had very similar experiences, um, but I think that typically younger men that I've experienced working with, and I'd say I say younger in probably the 30 to 40 range, um, are feeling more paralyzed as they move up the ladder than, say, you know, men that are further along in their careers in their 50s and 60s because, you know, they sort of feel like they're baked in and, and whatever they do going forward doesn't have the same impact potentially for their own mobility as someone that's in their 30s and 40s. And um, I think, as Josh said, it really gets back to the ability to have an open dialogue. If, you know, if women and men trying to move their way up the ladder aren't talking to each other, sure, there's competition among us. I mean, there's competition between men with other men and women with other women. Um, but ultimately, that competition should be sparking a healthy dialogue of, well, how do we all get better together rather than make everyone's life more difficult? I think I mean, that's around on. That's a great that how do we all how do we make each other better is a great question. And it's the point at which we're going to take a quick commercial break. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now back to Reimagine America on 860 AM. The answer. And we're back with the Reimagine America Radio Hour. And our guests, Anne-Marie Malika and Josh, Coll- Josh Colling from Deason Hall uh, Solutions, a crisis management firm in Washington, D.C., talking about when we went to break, we were talking about the changing dynamic between the um, between men and women in the workforce as a result of hashtag me Too, some of it is negative, but we all three of us believe that we can make something really positive out of it. And so, you know, I'm I'm going to look back, uh, as Anne-Marie and I both noted, we've frequently been the only woman in the room. And, and I, I think you're absolutely right. There were different dynamics in those days. Um, I remember one uh, senior manager saying to me, um, you know, you think like a man. I guess that means I'm logical and rational. Um, and I had another occasion. I actually, you know, uh, somebody who later became a really good friend of mine and I had a chat with last night um, who said, I was looking at your legs and then I realized I was listening to every word you said. And, you know, it's cringeworthy when we think about it in 2018 terms. But that guy meant it as a as a compliment. And. In those days, a woman would just have said, thank you, and moved right along because, you know, I was just one of the guys. Today, if a man said something like that to a woman, I shudder to think what would happen to him. It it certainly wouldn't be good. (laughs) No, it wouldn't. Josh, what do you think would happen? (laughs) Uh it could be uh, it could be fairly severe. I mean, we've seen we you know one of the things that folks and I think this is even more true for for men who are a little bit older, um, sort of not really getting what the red line is that you're not supposed to cross or even tiptoe up to. Um, and some of this stuff is fairly subjective, right? And so that you you again have to strike this balance between what is um, you know, how do, how do we maintain a, a culture where everyone enjoys 
spending time together at, for eight hours a day versus how do we make sure that we're not offending anyone? And those are difficult questions. Um, and so uh, I, I think it depends on who the comment is made to, frankly, and sadly, as to what the type of backlash is. But it could be a wide range of outcomes from uh, nothing happening to, to termination. And, and I think if you look at sort of the media coverage of the of how this has been happening at some pretty big companies, a number of which have been in Silicon Valley or in the, the tech mm-hmm. industries and sort of related fields, there are people that have lost their jobs that, you know, you might not have heard about their, um, you know, their dealings and them being these big, bad um, Harvey Weinsteins. However, there was a pattern of behavior that went on for a long period of time, and then when they were given you know, when that was called to, they were called to the coin on that behavior and they were given opportunities to uh, rectify it, they didn't, there were consequences to those um, to those behaviors. And I think that's important. I think it's important particularly for women to know that there are consequences for that bad behavior, but I also think it's important for women and men to get back to having a conversation of where is that red line that Josh mentioned. And that red line is, you know, not universally the same, for, you know, Josh and I are about the same age. We've been colleagues and friends for, you know, many years now. He and I can have some jokes that are different than perhaps, you know, a new hire that has never been in the office that doesn't know my sense of humor or his. And so those are, are subjective things that, you know, you can't, there's not going to be a perfect playbook. And that's where having this open dialogue of me being able to say to Josh, you know, I wasn't comfortable with you saying that and saying why. Um, And sure, that puts the onus on women, which as a woman, I'm sure other women listening to this are are thinking, what is she doing? You know, she's setting us up for, for more heartache and more challenges. But, you know, we have to set some boundaries as well. And it's important that there are those conversations and those clear lines and that the lines of communication stay open. I I think you're absolutely right, and and that you know brings me as I go back to looking at the comments in this survey uh, that give both all of us a broader idea because they came from um, all over the country. Um, has the pendulum swung too far when corporations start to say um, people of the opposite sex cannot travel together? They can't, you know, go to the same meeting. People of different age brackets cannot go on the same business trip, etc. Um, there was one person who commented it was very inconvenient because, well, he as the executive was in in uh, business class. He was no longer allowed to bring his admin um, up to business class with him where they could work on preparing for the meeting that they were traveling to. So when you see corporations doing things like that, has the pendulum swung too far to the other direction? And are there economic consequences? And, and you know, Beyond that, um, maybe that's a, maybe as, as a second question, we have to talk about: Is there a statute of limitations on bad behavior? And, and I don't mean Harvey Weinstein behavior, but you know, bad jokes and that kind of stuff. Is there is there a statute of limitations on that in the new world and that pendulum? I I, starting with the the idea that. Uh, many in corporate America are creating policies about 
women and men traveling together, I think that is increasingly dangerous and dangerous both from the culture of the organization and from an economic perspective. Um, you're only going to see fewer folks in the room and it's going to be more one-sided from a gender and I think culture perspective if those kinds of blanket rules exist. Now that being said, there are probably some organizations culturally that have gone so far in the wrong direction on the Me Too movement that maybe they feel that's the only correct way, the only right way to course correct. But on the whole, I can tell you that some of the best professional opportunities I had were meetings where I got to go with uh, uh, the president of our organization who's now retired and travel with him and do a business pitch and have dinner after the business pitch and sort of learn his philosophy and why he pitched the business the way that he did. And yeah, we took the train up to meet the potential client. We had a meal together. We stayed at the same hotel, obviously in separate places. We took the train back. Those hours that are sort of quote, wasted travel time, I learned so much and were so valuable to my career. And I think, you know, young men, should be learning from senior women and young women should be learning from senior men. There's an, an incredible perspective that comes from someone else's experience and that shouldn't be lost. So I think any company that's considering a policy that's that blanket should reconsider. Maybe there are some fail safes that can be put in place so that it doesn't have to be an absolute no. Um, I think we will lose out both on the quality of ideas and, um, you know, the dynamic nature of teams, if that happens. And ultimately, that comes back to the economics. And while it's hard to project what the numbers would be, I have to imagine it would be significant. Uh, and and I think that you're absolutely right. And we've got about a minute left, minute and a half left before we go to commercial. But um, here's a thought. Uh, and we may p- take this up after the commercial, and that is in the technology industry, we have such an imbalance between men and women um, in terms of women's interest in studying STEM and technology in college, et cetera. Is this kind of policy, is this swing all the way to the left, in fact, going to discourage women from entering what is seen as a male-dominant industry? And once they do, are they going to be inhibited because they're not going to have those opportunities that you and I had to be with senior men and and learn from them? And and I think that's a good place to take that commercial break. And Anne-Marie, you're up when we come back. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. And we're back. And as we were going to break, I was asking Anne-Marie if this swing of the pendulum all the way to the other direction has is, is going to be an inhibitor especially in the technology industry where we have a lot of trouble attracting women in their early career to enter a male-dominated career. And if we're dis- discouraging them from uh, having uh, mentorship relationships with more mature men, um, are we in fact going to make that gap worse? 
I'm not much of an optimist, generally speaking. However, my view here is really optimistic. And I think because, um, you know, the generations that are experiencing the Me Too movement are parents and have young children, and I don't have children myself, but I'm seeing young children um, have opportunities that, you know, are very equal and maybe not the way that it was for me when I grew up, and I'm guessing not the way it was for you when you grew up. Even if we didn't think anything of it, I think, you know, knowing that their parents are having these discussions in their offices and in their homes is changing the dynamic. So for Josh, who has a daughter, I don't think there's any reason why his child wouldn't think, you know, I should go in. I shouldn't go into a STEM field because mostly men are there. I think for them, their sort of baseline experience of, boys and girls will be different than ours are because the gender norms and the power dynamics simply were different for us. So I am optimistic in that regard. I think, you know, the next five to 10 years are still going to be transitional, but as long as this movement continues to be part of the public discourse, there's no reason that um, young women in particularly need to you know, not jump into the fields that they may be interested just because they're male-dominated. Yeah, and, and so, you know, I'm, I am very reticent to use the I have a daughter argument normally because working in Washington, D.C. as a Republican, um, that line is thrown out for every left-wing policy proposal is, well, don't you have a daughter? And often it doesn't make sense, but here it's directly relevant. Um, and so I'm glad Anne-Marie brought it up. My line for my kid, who's five years old in August, is you can be whatever you want to be as long as you strive to excel at it. And that's how we're going to raise our daughter and our son as well. Is if you, if you, want, you can do whatever you want as long as you want to be the best at it and you work hard. And I want that to be true when she grows up. I want that to be an actual opportunity that you can pursue whatever you wish. Um, and so that's why uh, a big reason why I take a lot of this stuff seriously. And I think that we are probably uh, experiencing a lot of progress on women not um, being on the wrong end of an unfair power dynamic uh, as a result of Me Too. But I also don't want everybody to be scared to talk to my daughter when she walks into the workplace because it may be misconstrued as harassment. I mean, look, these are very difficult um, there's a very difficult balance to strike, and I think it will always be very difficult. And while you know, we often at, at our firm at Desenhall don't like sort of wishy-washy phrases like transparency and open dialogues, we prefer action. Um, really, transparency and, and open dialogue is the most important thing here, and it's all, we're always going to be calibrating it. But we don't want what, the worst outcome of all this would be if we take an injustice against women that's been perpetrated for a long time and turn it into an even bigger injustice against women by holding them down and not allowing them to advance in their careers. I mean, my guys would win again um, in the power dynamic by overreacting to a real problem um, in a way that's completely counterproductive. So we as a firm, and we have counseled clients who are grappling with similar issues, uh, refuse to give up our culture, refuse to um, not involve both sexes in, uh, in big decisions and client work and things of that nature. We're not going to do that as the easy sort of cheap way to respond to Me Too and 
cover ourselves from any liability. We're going to get out in front of it and talk constantly both as a management team and with every employee in the firm to make sure that we're not missing anything. And we're going to also institute a level of trust that not only does the young female staffer who feels uh, a victim of inappropriate comments or, or, or other conduct uh, has the right to speak up on that without being retaliated against, but we're also going to give them the, we're going to demonstrate to the men that we're going to take honest looks at these things. And an accusation is not immediately uh, a guilty sentence. Um, we're, we're going to make sure that everyone understands that we're looking objectively at all of these issues and acting very quickly and decisively to determine what's happening. In, in doing that, in, in, oh, do, in doing that, um, do we, how do we deal with degrees of guilt? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the hardest question there is here. And you, at, 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 there's no 100% factual answer. It's not objective. It just, it just isn't, and it will never be. Um, so you have to put guidelines in place. There are red line things that everyone in the world would agree on are inappropriate, and those are obvious um, to, to, to anyone with a brain. There are smaller um, issues and actions that reasonably reasonable people can disagree on. Um, so I can't give you a, a, an objective answer to this is appropriate and this is inappropriate because it's different to everyone. But what we can do is if you know, set up a, a, situ, a, uh, a culture where um, discussions about that after the fact can happen, and if and and we can, like I said, continually be recalibrating um, what's a productive uh, office environment in which everyone can be comfortable and respected. And to the extent it's possible, it, you know, companies need to have clear sexual harassment policies that are written that are available to all staff when they start and as they continue in the company. I mean, this is a good time in the world to be an employment lawyer uh, because these issues are popping up and everybody does want to be able to say you absolutely can do this and you absolutely cannot do this. And sure, there are some of those guardrails, but as we've all discussed here, there is a lot of gray area. And if you have policies that speak to sort of, you know, the guardrails that can exist, and then also how we will handle the gray areas and at least the process in which the gray gray areas will be handled is clear. You know, you've created a policy and an environment that allows for these situations to be dealt with in a fair and complete manner. And and then you see increasingly frequently, um, I think it was Adele this week, that a CEO was terminated not for current behavior, but for for prior behavior, do we need to put some sort of, you know, when should, when should hashtag me too become a death sentence for someone's career versus yeah. a moment at I mean, which we stop and say, you know, let's, let's correct your behavior. Yeah. I mean, I, I won't speak for our firm or, or for Anne-Marie on that, I, I, but I think personally that, um, that there is, and we, we see this in non-MeToo related instances with all kinds of client crises and things of that nature where 
there's a rush to indict, um, and there is a sort of can be a, a mob mentality on social media. We've seen it um, recently with the number of athletes who said really horrific and dumb things when they were 13, 14, 15 years old. Um, now being dragged under the coals for, for things like that 10 years ago. I mean, a lot of folks just weren't prepared for the social media environment, and, um, you know, they're, they're paying the consequences. I think that before we, you know, I, I think that a, an environment in which the goal is to just point out and humiliate and harass everyone who's done something wrong um, is, the, is the primary goal. Uh, I, I think that's problematic rather than working to, to sort of foster some understanding and give folks an opportunity to self-examine and look backward and um, change. I, I think that um, this rush to punishment and rush to judgment is counterproductive in a lot of ways because it doesn't give people the opportunity to learn and grow uh, and, and change for the better because they're screwed before they get to that point. Yeah, and I think... I think that's an important point, Josh, because when we take it back to where, you know, we began the conversation around there are economic consequences to this, um, we've we've got to give people a, a chance to be, uh, we have to have a chance for redemption in order to recreate a balance in the workplace that allows everybody to prosper and the economy to continue to grow based on innovation and risk taking. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, Anne Marie, you know, I I think it's Josh is absolutely right in the sense that we should not put punishment for every um, you know every indiscretion along the spectrum, and I do think there is a spectrum, and I think that you know everybody wants things to be black and white, but we have to. Um, we have to talk about the spectrum because we do live a life in shades of gray. And um, there are certainly some people that should be uh, held accountable from a legal perspective and perhaps from a professional perspective for their actions. But if, if the ultimate goal is to create a society where men and women can work together in environments that foster creativity and economic growth, then we have to also be willing to teach lessons. And that's no different than you know, us teaching our staff to be better writers or teaching folks to um, do new business pitches or, you know, learn the next and newest, greatest technology. Um, we should all be learning and evolving together all the time. And I think that anyone that is handling these issues for their organization should be looking at it through a lens of how can we make this a better place for everyone to be. And if we keep that lens in focus, I think that, you know, economically and culturally, whether it's Washington or Silicon Valley, we'll be okay. But we all have to be mindful of it. And, you know, there are all these talks about mindfulness in, in the workplace. And I think this is one of those things where if we, we stop talking about it and we take our eye off the ball or we feel that we could be complacent, we're going to be right back where we were or maybe, you know, in a place that's worse because the pendulum swung differently. Um, and I don't want to see that. And I think you're absolutely right. And I want to thank Anne-Marie Malika and Josh Culling from Decent Hall Resources for an hour that was well spent. Uh, we appreciate your wisdom and your thoughtfulness. And I have a feeling that you guys are in a great business 
uh, uh, place right now in terms of hashtag me too. Thank you so much. Um, and I hope both of you have a great evening. Thanks for having us, Joyce. Appreciate it. Thanks, Joyce. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America on 860 AM, The Answer. We'll be back next Sunday with Robert Pearl, the former CEO of Kaiser Permanente and the author of Mistreated. During our previous two conversations, the doctor and I have talked about the symptoms of our overpriced, underperforming healthcare system. And we've diagnosed the reasons that it is overpriced and underperforming. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about the cure, a healthcare system that is better, quicker, cheaper, more flexible, customer focused, and smarter. And here's a hint it's not a government driven single payer system. That's not going to save us any money or change the dynamics. But that doesn't mean that the government doesn't have a role to play along with the private sector. So that's next Sunday's interesting conversation. In the meantime, if you have questions and or topics that you would like to have answered on the Reimagine America Radio Hour, send me an email at Joyce at reimagineamerica.org. I do try to respond to as many listener comments as I can. And in addition to reimagineamerica.org, you can find Reimagine America on Facebook. And you find me at Joyce Cordy, one word, on Twitter. And the podcast of this show on hashtag me too and how do we move forward will be posted uh, on Monday on the Reimagine America Radio Hour page. Reimagine America is independent and nonprofit. If you appreciate our independent, results oriented, post political voice, please consider making a small donation at reimagineamerica.org. And in the meantime, have a wonderful Sunday, and we'll look forward to talking with you next week. This has been Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Go to reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum, donate, tell others, and sign up to receive future podcasts. That's reimagineamerica.org. Together, we can reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.